The United States, like many other Western nations, has a history accented with great achievements that broke down barriers to the future. These same histories are also bloated with an array of catastrophic failures that are lessons for the ages. For centuries, foreign policy has been the cornerstone to America's prominence on the world stage. What once was a predominantly isolationist precedent has now transformed into an overly hawkish tendency. Whether it be through direct involvement with the enemy or power contests conducted through proxy states, the U.S. has made itself both friend and foe to nations of the world. While just a minute part of its history, one particular nation has tugged at not only the U.S.'s coffers, but also its news channels, chirons, and citizens' attention. Join me, Michael Popa, this week as I explore with you over the next few pieces the deep roots that America and its allies have in Afghanistan and the surrounding region. Today, we'll look back at the rising terrorist influences in the region and assess the Afghanistan that our generation grew up with in the post-9-11 era. I'm Michael Popa, and this is Deep Roots. Having risen to power with the approval of the Afghanistan population, the Taliban immediately began reverting the social and political change that the country had been undergoing for the past two centuries. In transforming the nation from its once Westlight democracy to a more traditionalist Muslim-style rule, the Taliban tore away at women's rights, including rights to education, employment, and instilled the religious token of wearing head coverings again. The Taliban also banned drug production and strapped down on crime. Afghans were also denied aid from the United Nations. Homes and farms were burned or destroyed, and their occupants murdered, which added to the squalid crop conditions that were drying up farmland and drove millions of Afghan citizens out of the country into neighboring states such as India, Iran, and primarily, Pakistan. Even media platforms like television, radio, and music were outlawed for fear of Western influence. For those that didn't want to abide by the government's new rules, they were instead maimed or executed as a lesson to other dissidents. In a long-standing attempt to fight the Taliban's efforts and rejuvenate Afghanistan, the Northern Alliance, an ethnic group led by Ahmad Shah Massoud out of northern Afghanistan, worked with the groups to stand up against the Taliban's oppressive reform. This anti-Taliban campaign was unsuccessful, though, as the Taliban began exuding their confidence in their power and might immediately upon assuming authority in the region. As one of their first acts and displays of anti-war sentiment, the Taliban kidnapped former Afghanistan President Mohammad Najibullah from UN protection in 1996. They tortured him extensively and then killed him, dragging his body behind a vehicle throughout the streets of Kabul. It wasn't long, though, before al-Qaeda and the Taliban were ready to extend outside their borders to attack the West. In 1998, suicide bombers simultaneously attacked two American embassies in Africa, one in Nairobi, Kenya, and the other in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. The blast killed more than 200 people, including 12 Americans, and injured another 5,000. As a sharp response to the dramatic increase in violence against America, President Bill Clinton ordered missile launches against an al-Qaeda position in Afghanistan used for training recruits but failed to successfully breach the target. Having stepped up their game and entering the world stage, the international community perked up their ears and lifted their eyebrows as they turned again towards Afghanistan. As a result of the unsuccessful retaliation, Clinton hopelessly demanded the extradition of bin Laden, but the UN's added sanctions against Afghanistan weren't much of an encouragement for the Taliban to start behaving. By 2000, bin Laden had trained thousands of terrorist allies in Afghanistan to carry out his jihad against America. Now, given the rich and nuanced history of Afghanistan that we've just started to scratch the surface of, I asked Dr. Austin Nuppy from the Utah State University Department of Political Science to join me on this project. To help expound on the intricacies of this region, here's some of his thoughts from our interview. Dr. Nuppy, thank you for coming. So out of the Soviet-Afghan war, we saw the creation of the Islamic Al-Qaeda, I believe in 1988, um, which opposed the first Western involvement in the region and the occupation they were sort of mentioning earlier that no one really tends to favor. But uh, after Russia left in 1989, that anti-West sentiment uh, turned towards outside the country itself. Um, we saw, uh, started to see a lot of terrorist attacks outside of the borders of Afghanistan and Iraq as well. Um, what do you think brought these anti-West sentiments to surface? 
Well, that's that's a massive question. I we could fill books and books with that. Um, with respect to Al-Qaeda in particular, we have to keep in mind that during the 90s, as bin Laden is building out this network, Al-Qaeda means the base, right, in Arabic, he's building a, a network of former uh, um, uh, ideological allies that had fighting experience on battlefields like Afghanistan. He's trying to um, uh, build a cohesive movement, and he airs, or he tells the West, the U.S., uh, Great Britain, uh, Western Europe, the series of grievances that motivate al-Qaeda's attacks against Western civilians, right? So he is aggrieved by the U.S. support for the state of Israel, right, as a, as a Zionist occupier of the land of Palestine, in the opinion of bin Laden and his acolytes, right? He is um, um, opposing U.S. support for uh, autocratic uh, uh, dictators in the Middle East, people like Mubarak in Egypt and uh, the Saudi monarchy, um, um, you can think about the Baathist, the Baathist uh, Saddam Hussein in Iraq or, or uh, Bashar al-Assad in, in Syria. That's the second grievance. The third is uh, this, the, the presence of U.S. troops in the holy cities of uh, in Saudi Arabia, which of course is the home to Mecca and Medina, two of the most holy cities for Islam. So bin Laden sees U.S. influence supporting autocratic states, supporting the state of Israel, having a military presence in a really a holy, a holy territory. And so he uses a set of three or four grievances um, to recruit and build solidarity within his group, then to strike um, uh, to strike U.S. and Western influences in the Middle East, and then obviously in the early 2000s beyond the region as well. During our interview, we obviously talked a lot about Afghanistan's geographical and political importance, but we also chatted about modern influences and power struggles in the region. So, if you like what you heard, make sure to go to our channel at Aggie Radio for the full-length interview. These recruits carried their attacks against political and religious enemies into the 2000s, threatening to destroy religious sites, such as Buddhist statues, as well as kidnapping and imprisoning eight international aid workers after being accused of proselytizing Christian beliefs. The terrorist front had grown so rampantly that the anti-Taliban efforts were diminishing from successive failures. After a long campaign against the Taliban, Massoud, leader of the Northern Alliance and the insurgent that led the battle against the invading Soviets back in the 1980s, was assassinated on September 9, 2001. Not two days after the harrowing death of one of Afghanistan's heroes, the largest attack on America was deployed on her own soil. In the early hours of September 11, 2001, Islamic terrorists hijacked four commercial airplanes. Two struck the World Trade Center towers in New York City, one flew into the side of the Pentagon, and the fourth was usurped by crew and passengers crash-landing in a field in rural Pennsylvania. In all, the attacks killed nearly 3,000 people. While none of the hijackers were Afghan nationals, American officials declared bin Laden and his al-Qaeda partners to be the perpetrators of the attacks. Within days and for the coming weeks, the U.S. and Great Britain coordinated air attacks, including missile launches and bombings, against the Taliban and al-Qaeda positions in Afghanistan in an attempt to fragment the terrorist matrix. With the indirect fire support of the U.S. and Britain, the Northern Alliance reaffirmed its position in Afghanistan and took over Kabul in November, cornering the remaining Taliban forces into Kandahar, where they would make their final stand. Just a couple days later, the Taliban finally surrendered all remaining territory, ending the terrorist rule in the country. In a letter addressed to U.S. troops, Bush wrote, Quote, you took out a brutal enemy and denied al-Qaeda a safe haven while building schools, sending supplies, and providing medical care. You kept America safe from further terror attacks, provided two decades of security and opportunity for millions, and made America proud. Unquote. To set up the new government, Hamid Karzai, an exile from Pakistan that helped lead the Mujahideen and other anti-Taliban efforts, was appointed with U.S. support as interim president of Afghanistan until a full government would be restructured. In 2004, the Loyajira, a special legislative body, approved a new Afghan constitution that called for social reform for women and implemented a president and two vice presidents as head of state. Following the adoption of this constitution, presidential elections were held. 
Tens of millions of Afghans were able to vote and participate in the new government in which they chose to re-elect Karzai for another term and set up the Afghan parliament, the National Assembly. Despite all of the good happening in Afghanistan's new government, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were still trying to retain their presence in the region and had even spread to Pakistan to remain alive. NATO had promised its first security force outside of Europe to the southern part of Afghanistan, but terrorist attacks were on the rise and targeting the international security forces' troops. In an effort to encourage further development of the region, almost $20 billion was sent to the region as an aid package from Afghanistan's western allies. As an extension of the peace-building and democracy-spreading efforts of the U.S. and Afghanistan, President Barack Obama signed off on over 15,000 troops to be sent out with military and civilian contractors to train and help the Afghan government and military develop. In a great stride toward success in bolstering the region against terrorist threats, Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden was killed in a raid by the famous United States Navy SEAL Team 6 in his compound in Pakistan on May 2, 2011. With terrorist influence on the decline and a more capable Afghan government and military trained and ready to handle their own operations, the Afghan army assumed security duties from NATO forces and considerations for U.S. withdrawal began. Especially after the tragic incident in which an American soldier murdered over a dozen Afghan civilians, President Karzai and President Obama were ready for American forces to leave Afghanistan. In May 2014, President Obama announced his plan for withdrawal out of Afghanistan by 2016. In short, the plan aimed to reduce the U.S. force from 32,000 combat troops to just shy of 10,000 by the end of 2014. These remaining soldiers would continue to train and support the Afghan army in security and anti-terrorism operations, but would not serve in a combat role. By the end of 2016, the goal was to have fewer than 1,000 of these training and security forces still in place in Kabul and the U.S.'s main post in Afghanistan, Bagram Airfield. While an honorable plan to try and bring troops home and to leave Afghanistan to its own capabilities, President Obama realized a full withdrawal as he desired would not be possible without setting the region up for collapse again. The new Afghan government and military would not be able to support itself, especially against the angered remnants of al-Qaeda and the Taliban. While NATO forces fully withdrew in late 2014, Obama abandoned his pullout framework and decided instead to maintain a skeleton force of 6,000 troops to support the new government. On October 15, 2015, Barack Obama addressed the nation about his change to his plans, Here's a clip from that speech now. Good morning. Last December, more than 13 years after our nation was attacked by al-Qaeda on 9-11, America's combat mission in Afghanistan came to a responsible end. That milestone was achieved thanks to the courage and the skill of our military, our intelligence, and civilian personnel. They served there with extraordinary skill and valor, and it's worth remembering especially the more than 2,200 American patriots who made the ultimate sacrifice in Afghanistan. I visited our troops in Afghanistan last year to thank them on behalf of a grateful nation. I told them they could take great pride in the progress that they helped achieve. They struck devastating blows against the al-Qaeda leadership in the tribal regions, delivered justice to Osama bin Laden, prevented terrorist attacks, and saved American lives. They pushed the Taliban back so the Afghan people could reclaim their communities, send their daughters to school, and improve their lives. Our troops trained Afghan forces so they could take the lead for their own security and protect Afghans as they voted in historic elections, leading to the first democratic transfer of power in their country's history. Today, American forces no longer patrol Afghan villages or valleys. Our troops are not engaged in major ground combat against the Taliban. Those missions now belong to Afghans, who are fully responsible for securing 
their country. But, as I've said before, while America's combat mission in Afghanistan may be over, our commitment to Afghanistan and its people endures. As Commander-in-Chief, I will not allow Afghanistan to be used as safe haven for terrorists to attack our nation again. Our forces, therefore, remain engaged in two narrow but critical missions, training Afghan forces and supporting counterterrorism operations against the remnants of al-Qaeda. Speaking from Fort Myer, Virginia, on August 21, 2017, President Donald Trump came to the same understanding of a necessary presence to maintain peace in the region. Here's that clip. I arrived at three fundamental conclusions about America's core interests in Afghanistan. First, our nation must seek an honorable and enduring outcome worthy of the tremendous sacrifices that have been made, especially the sacrifices of lives. The men and women who serve our nation in combat deserve a plan for victory. They deserve the tools they need and the trust they have earned to fight and to win. Second, the consequences of a rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. 9-11, the worst terrorist attack in our history, was planned and directed from Afghanistan because that country was ruled by a government that gave comfort and shelter to terrorists. A hasty withdrawal would create a vacuum that terrorists, including ISIS and al-Qaeda, would instantly fill, just as happened before September 11th. And as we know, in 2011, America hastily and mistakenly withdrew from Iraq. As a result, our hard-won gains slipped back into the hands of terrorist enemies. Our soldiers watched as cities they had fought for and bled to liberate, and one were occupied by a terrorist group called ISIS. The vacuum we created by leaving too soon gave safe haven for ISIS to spread, to grow, recruit, and launch attacks. We cannot repeat in Afghanistan the mistake our leaders made in Iraq. Still desiring a return of troops back to U.S. soil, though, President Donald Trump vied for a peace deal between Afghanistan and the Taliban, but reneged when an American soldier was killed by the Taliban in late 2019. But just after the November 2020 elections, the Trump administration made an announcement saying that plans were in place to reduce the standing military forces in Afghanistan down to just 2,500 troops by January. While enough troops to continue the training and security mission with the Afghan military, 2,500 soldiers would soon become zero as on April 14, 2021, President Biden announced the full and complete withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Afghanistan. While President Obama and President Trump were both able to understand that a complete withdrawal would be disastrous, President Biden's sanctimonious attempt at ending the 20-year war would not come without its failures. Join me next time as we explore the events that led to the Taliban recapture of Afghanistan after a hasty U.S. withdrawal. We'll discuss what went wrong, what capabilities the Taliban and Afghan governments have in the absence of the U.S., and how the next generation will have to answer for the actions of the Biden administration's decision. I'm Michael Popa, and this is Deep Roots.
Like what you heard? Make sure to like and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you want to hear more. You can find me on Instagram at michael.popaii. You can also find the Utah Statesman on Instagram and Twitter at Utah Statesman. Or you can pick up our newspapers on campus and online at utahstatesman.com. This show is brought to you by the Utah State University Student Media. Copyright Utah Statesman 2021.